Welcome to Better Angels, the podcast for women creating change. I'm Susan Ferry Price, and each week I have a conversation with an entrepreneur, activist, investor, or other visionary woman who's helping make our world a little bit better. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is sponsored by Astonish Media Group. Storytelling is an art form that every brand needs, and Astonish knows how to craft a unique story and deliver it in a way that really resonates with journalists. Visit astonishmediagroup.com, and Better Angels listeners can email Paula at Astonish Media Group for a complimentary 30-minute consultation. I'll have links in the show notes. A few years ago, I was in Connecticut. I came across a truly remarkable building a building that flows like a river through a leafy, bucolic setting in the town of New Canaan. I soon discovered that this peaceful and significant building was the home of Grace Farms, a nonprofit with a vision as lofty and ambitious as the building itself. Grace Farms takes an interdisciplinary approach to promoting peace through five key initiatives, nature, arts, justice, community, and faith. Sharon Prince, its CEO and founder, is a former entrepreneur who oversaw the building of Grace Farms with Pritzker Prize-winning architecture firm Sauna, projects including Design for Freedom, a movement to rid the building trades of modern slavery, and a social venture called Grace Farms Foods. Here's Sharon. So have you been to Grace Farms? I have been several times. Great. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, the first time I kind of found you randomly because I was driving along and I was just enchanted by the building. And then I went to one of your dinners and I heard a few people speak. The man who wrote um, Stamped. Oh, you saw, oh, fantastic. So even Kendi. Yes, yes. Thank you. Stamped from the beginning. Yes, that that was such a, a fundamental um, moment moment for us because that was back in 2017 when he just won the National Book Award for that tome, that really um, important book. And since then, you know that you know, he's become you know, a leading thinker and uh, leader of the anti-racist movement. So it's really an important moment that was. Um, conceived as part of our both our arts and community initiative, you know, gender and racial parity and that effort from the beginning has been embedded into our ethos. Your mission is fascinating to me. I'm curious how this started in your mind and if it if you started with this grand vision or something smaller that just sort of continued to add pieces. So the idea for Grace Farms started with the land and also the concept that space communicates. So I believe that architecture, when activated, can play a significant role in a more just and equitable world. So Grace Farms was imagined as this new kind of public space, and our aim was to create a a hopeful space where peace would take shape, very aspirational, where nature is in the foreground and the building becomes part of the landscape. So the idea was to create a peaceful respite, yet active, also where these new outcomes emerge to address our most pressing humanitarian issues. So it was established with this idea that space communicates and could embed values into that space, grace and peace being two primary ones. You know, then it's not just the building, it's how people could activate it so that space could be generative over the next hundred years. When you think about 
justice and or like the, the five initiatives that we have are nature, arts, justice, community, and faith. And one of the fundamental barriers to equity in the world, as we've talked about from the beginning, is is being in proximity to people and issues and preserving and converting Grace Farms as 80 acres of publicly available space was our first move. And then we solidified the ability to create a space to experience the awe and wonder of nature, which then also takes you out of yourself like when you're, when you're in, in that space and invite people from all backgrounds and sectors. I think of like nature as our common denominator. That's really interesting to me because one of the feelings that I had when I was there is, is you do, you immediately do feel calm. Um, the way the building works with, with the environment is, is beautiful. And then it's interesting, you almost open up to some of some of the ideas that you know, in your justice events, at least the ones I attended, you know, these, these aren't, these aren't easy concepts. And usually when you're hearing about them or discussing them, it's in a more, you know, volatile setting, I would, I would say. So you have this kind of calm, open feeling while you're listening to some of these, you know, more challenging ideas. It's a really interesting juxtaposition. Perhaps you're more open to coming up with you know, solutions. And so this is like very encouraging that that's what you grasp because that's the intention. You know, the open architecture does make you more open. And we did ask for a porous space that was a hopeful space that could break down those barriers between people and sectors. That's a super important part. And like that also that would pique your curiosity. These are all these aspirational directives, architectural directives, and to create a more ambulatory experience that would form new perspectives. So you can see the way the river is not only um, creating this ambulatory experience along the pathways and just the movement, the undulating form, but it's also embedded in the landscape. So the building becomes part of the landscape. Even the sanctuary, the apex of the river uh, building, there are no stairs, and each one of the chairs are actually cut individually to be to form the amphitheater space. And then you have this distant vistas, you know, out into the landscape itself. And so it's very hopeful. It is a hopeful, light-filled space with 360 degrees of glass. And we also asked, you know, for there to be you know, to evoke a warm and inviting yet intellectually and stimulating environment as well for the individual and the collective. It's really great that you that you understood that. You had enormous enormous for, I, I you do you succeeded and and that's kind of extraordinary because those are very large aspirations. <laughs> yes. It was exactly, no, it is. And then what's interesting about that is that, okay, then how do you convert these aspirations into three-dimensional space? And how do you hold together some of the polarity between a peaceful respite and active community and all these other directives that might seem, you know, like difficult to, to, to embed one space? But Sejima and Nishizawa of Sana uh, they're um, extraordinary you know, Japanese uh, architects who who actually are of the mindset and they themselves embody so much we wanted to create. You, you, I don't believe you can create something of, of this nature without having the same values. And so they really understood what we were envisioning. 
this vision, you know, inspiring good in the world, um, in the world that's embedded into the river building, its design, uh, but also they understood the social and spiritual potential of it. The aspirational and utilitarian directives were all part of our 35-page program that they essentially, you know, solved. So what emerged was this, was inevitably the river building, these farm pathways, the entire landscape. So what might appear as free-flowing design was actually highly, highly intentional optimization, very precise. Had you ever overseen a building project before, or what was your background before you, you took on this massive project? <laughs> so, um, so no, I've never built one building uh, prior, not a home and not built um, anything. Um, however, I'm a, an entrepreneur. Is really being an entrepreneur is creating something new. This is just taking three-dimensional space to do that. So my role is to hold the vision, just like you know, you think about uh, you know, within a business context too. So you hold the vision and you have these goals and tactics, how you're going to achieve it. And so it was really important that I did not believe I even though I very much appreciate design, I had a former company called 66 Degree North out of, it's not technical outerwear brand out of Iceland. And it was, so the appreciation of design, filling gaps that don't exist, um, you know, really having that training, I would say it was, it was actually probably very beneficial to running the project and ensuring you're reaching the vision, not overlaying my design aesthetics to do that. And in fact, we did not see a rendering for two years. It was all through a conceptual process with, with models. So then we could assess whether we're achieving those goals. And I try to let people know that um, might want to you know, um, create projects and, and, and try to um, take an approach where you define really well what you're trying to achieve that are both aspirational and utilitarian. And then hiring, you know, hiring great people to execute that is key. <laughs> yeah, so that didn't, that, that, that didn't hurt. And in fact, what happened is that Asajj Manishizawa won the Pritzker Prize after we selected them. Confirmation of your, uh, <laughs> of your choice. It wasn't just them. Also, I'd say it wasn't just them. A team that did not have hubris, that could work together, could collaborate. It was very much an iterative process. So it wasn't, it was, even what we wrote down on paper wasn't exactly the fullness of that vision. It took that back and forth. And the rest of the team that could do something that was never done before, these are all new kinds of, it's a new kind of architecture too. We spent two years on the, on the glass alone to create this, so that you almost didn't see the glass cross these hurdles of how to do that together when you're all in, you know, in concert to create this new kind of form. And then after that, what happens is that they all became part of Design for Freedom. Did you, were you aware, because it was new to me, so Design for Freedom is an effort to rid the building trades, the construction trade of modern slavery, human trafficking, forced labor. I was not really aware, you know, there are certain industries that I think of when I think about human trafficking, and I really was not aware 
of how rampant it was in that industry. Did you know that before the building process? It's a great question, and you're not alone. Really, the whole industry has not been aware or focused on this really egregious humanitarian right um, issues, or human rights issue. To, to go back even from the beginning, um, in year one, we had convened the UN University and about 125 multi-sector private part, um, public-private organizations to address modern-day slavery. It actually is in areas of conflict, the most brutal, because we had a, it, before we opened, we had the stake in the ground and modern-day slavery and gender-based violence. So we opened with a very strong um, justice initiative team that had extensive law enforcement experience. And we initialized law enforcement training that also included social service providers and companies, how to address human trafficking and forced labor in their work. So this convening we had also um, published, we published a report for the UN Security Council to consider and ultimately ended up with a UN Security Resolution 2331. And so we were already investing in this. And at the same time, we invested in architecture, made this commitment, right, to do both for good. And what happened is two years after we opened, when I was on a, a jury evaluating architecture, it dawned on me that there was a gaping hole in the understanding that the largest industrialized sector in the world the highest risk of forced and child labor was, and still is, getting a labor transparency pass. And it's because I asked, okay, are these, it was like another project, not my own, right? So I was like, do we, do we know where these bricks came from? Because I, I knew this project was an area that was a hot spot. And everybody looked at me, you know, with, with a, a, a blank look, right? Like the, I, and I realized, wait a minute, the leaders of the industry have not been thinking about it. I hadn't thought about it. And then I went to the whole team that built Grace Farms with me. And then not only did they not think about it, they said, well, how am I actually, how's everybody culpable, right? In the, like you were describing, first it was about, those who were called to the table first were those in the food industry. And then food, then clothing. Right, factories, sweatshops, right. Yeah, and these are all our essentials, right? And then I'm proposing next will be shelter, food, clothing, shelter. These are our fundamentals. We all have a we all are culpable. We all have um, are, you know have purchasing power that can be skewed towards um, an ethical or you know ethical supply chain or not. So, Design for Freedom by Grace Farms is this new movement that we're leading with now in eighty industry leaders, practitioners, activists. I mean, artists, manufacturers, deans of architecture schools uh, within the ecosystem of the built environment. So we are bringing everyone to the table at one time to reduce the amount of time it will take to remove forced labor from the building material supply chain. Speaks to the importance of your interdisciplinary approach to these things because, you know, we're also siloed that we, you know, you don't think in your industry and, you know, we're part of this larger ecosystem in which this is going on and so at so many levels. Right. When you put the stake in the ground about um, this being one of your key social justice issues, what brought you to that? Um, I had known about uh, for, uh, human trafficking about 20 years ago and have seen so little 
progress. And this is so when I started the project was back in 2007, and I could see that it was such a dark issue, and nobody was taking any action, and there was nowhere to talk about it. Like it just hasn't been brought up, or if it is, if there's an awareness of it, it certainly didn't. It, it, it wasn't changing the magnitude of the issue. There's 40 million now um, estimated to be um, to be subjected to human trafficking, modern day slavery, those that are enslaved, and then but 25 million are in forced labor conditions, and and children are at 152 million child labor. So the um, certainly the magnitude of the issue required a to me, it, was, it rose to the top of what we need to tackle. And at the same time, in terms of justice, I'm you know wired to you know to be able to create a, a world where there's gender and racial parity too. And it's also so tied to racism, right? Um, what have you found to be the reception? So uh, this is a huge um, undertaking of the design for freedom, but I know you have some other programming around um, trafficking. Do you find different audiences respond differently to some of your, because you're, you're covering nature, you're covering the arts, you have community events. I'm just curious what resonates where you are. Well, we're, we're, we're um, addressing these issues on a local and global basis. So we do, we're, you know, we have these programs that are public here at Grace Farms, but we're also doing private work at the same time. We're all working the same space. As, as we're open to the public. So and we're free and open to the public too. We just opened with a new visitor engagement, new exhibitions. The proposed exhibitions are also illuminating the issue of uh, design for freedom. It also illuminated um, this one's called Common Good Through Crisis, which is another exhibition we're opening up this weekend with Mass Design, a, a phenomenal architecture firm, a nonprofit architecture firm. Um, that's going to really talk about, um, you know, here we are emerged from, from the pandemic. People now understand supply, never even talked about supply chains before the pandemic. All of a sudden it's a sexy issue. <laughs> yeah, so now people actually are paying attention to this and also the importance of community. So we're proposing that, uh, we're, gonna, we're illustrating how we were able to shift our operations. So when um, the most pressing humanitarian issue at the time was to obtain PPE and also to, um, you know, to address the rising food insecurity that was happening at the same time. So we were able to rely on not only the expertise we had in supply chains, but also our relationships locally and globally to fill a, a gap that we were the first to fill actually in, in Connecticut. And sort of went old school, you know, instead of <laughs> in the fact they just, you know, it's boots on the ground. We had um, emergency management teams that were here locally and that, fanned, that um, they found out and understood what were the needs for all, all the municipalities in our area. And so that when we brought in the PPE, which was a, another whole feat in itself, but we did and brought in, we had a hundred, brought in a hundred, over a hundred thousand N95s at the end of March, which was, it was still like nowhere in sight. The state didn't have it. Um, so we were able to do that and then immediately turn around 24 hours, which is also a feat to all those that needed it, hospitals, frontline workers. And we did that continually to we then um, ended up um, procuring and donating 500,000 N95s and 2 million um, 
PPE. And so we're going to show how the connections are all very much a very much so important, but they have to be established before a crisis hits. Right? You can't just like, okay, how does that all happen? Right. We have the infrastructure. Right. It really is about making commitment. I was on a Zoom call and I just said, you know, let's go find, let's go get the, you know, all of the, it was, let's fill that gap in the state. And not knowing exactly what I was saying in terms of the, <laughs> the statement there, but, but then you have to figure out a way. But it's just really, um, it's a commitment first. And then, um, then you just, you work around the clock to you can, there's, there's not a lot of sleep for most entrepreneurs and there's still not any, <laughs> no different with, with a uh, foundation nonprofit either. <laughs> and obviously this is a hugely well-funded project in order to reach this scale. What is the potential for similar kind of things being done on a smaller scale or in communities where I could just really see them being incredibly important? To the community itself? That's a, a really great question. I, I, I think the main thing that the, the common denominator is to have an entrepreneurial ethos, like to be thinking about, about you know, solving this. That those, they don't always, they don't all take uh, funding necessarily, right? There's many things we do that just that aren't funded necessarily. It's about like connecting um, people that have the wherewithal also to contribute important to know and also to imagine to still think futuristically like to think about the future we want to be and to have people around you that have the same kind of um, ethos also where we are in having these kinds of conversations that about pressing humanitarian issues is is, is so important like the fact that you came to Ibram Kendi back in 2007 that was probably the first conversation about um, anti-racism and not only New Canaan but the area Right. And that's, that's also true is that in any kind of an affluent area of the country, you get a, you get a certain level of a bubble and people maybe are less aware. They're aware of course, but you know, they're, it's not in their face every day. So it's easier to, you know, not think about things. The time that we were closed, we were closed. We were also operating as a central place of business. Uh, Grace Farms Foods was launched. Um, an exciting way to look at a new model, right? That nonprofits can create and, you know, with, with own, their own sustainable income streams. Or do your products go back, you know, are they made by other populations? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like, so through a social venture lens um, in the consumer packaging, package good sector. So you could, um, Think about it too, just in terms of a model. Then I go to the people um, that are part of this. But previously, Newman's own creative business, and then the foundation followed. We flipped this by starting with the foundation, and then a B Corp was B Corp was created to demonstrate the work of Grace Farms, but also to fund our charitable activities. So this is an example of how demonstrating this by creating ethical and sustainable supply chains, I talked about earlier, so you can, you know, it's demonstrating what we're advocating for, because we're saying we need to create these, 
ethical and sustainable supply chains, it is difficult. And we, but we did it. So we, um, our founding operations and sustainability director, Adam Thatcher, created Grace Farms Foods with me as one of our open new outcomes that I talked about. Right. So um, you know, building on the work also that he did to enable us to receive our second lead certification, which is a silver one for operations and maintenance. So the things we were learning about, we, we inspected all all of the. Um, items that we brought into Grace Farms through this ethical and sustainable lens. And I don't think, I think few buildings even pursue both the operations and maintenance and how you build, right? So then we learned that. And then we, so we build upon that further. We, now we've partnered with Fairtrade International to certify a number of our products, such as the first Fairtrade certified chocolate chip cookie. Yes, that's coming out next week. Oh, yay. I, I will be your first customer. Oh, fantastic. So Sylvia Baldini is a celebrated chef. She won Chopped one year, and um, she created the most delicious recipe for our cookies. And yeah, she's a super advocate for Grace Farms and our aim to build a more hopeful future also you know, with women and racial parity in the forefront. So now we're like having fun with the brand. It's, like, it's called Chips, Drips, and Sips. Just like you were describing, we wanted to extend the on-site experience of Grace Farms and our vision for this world to be filled with more grace and peace through food, which is also element, elemental to bring people together. But another example of empowering female entrepreneurs around the world is through DRIPS, our ethically and sustainably sourced coffee. So a while ago, a generous supporter of Grace Farms, who's also a leading coffee distributor in the country, offered to create a Grace Farms blend at opening. And he decided to come and donate coffee after reviewing our plans. And I noted there was a number of spots for coffee, which is um, you know, quite remarkable they did so. But later we decided actually tea is probably better for a place of grace and peace. But nevertheless, uh, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. <laughs> exactly. Um, but well, in order to stay true to how we wanted to start from scratch, I thought that the only way we could incorporate this brand into Grace Farms is to go deeper. And I asked him, could he source not only organic Rainforest Lines coffee, and now we know like Fair Trade, International, um, but could he identify women-led co-ops in Ethiopia, Colombia, and Indonesia? And there was an immediate yes, which, you know, because I asked, you know, and if I, and if I didn't ask, we wouldn't have the results we do today, which is a reminder for us all to ask for, you know, to ask for the alignment of our values and ethics as we create new things. Absolutely. And I mean, I personally believe that's the way the world is going. And in the meantime, we have to step up and start asking, you know, we have to actively look for these conscious products and ask questions about how we're spending our money all the way, you know, from the little to the big. Is this anywhere where you expected to be when you got started? You know, that's what we were hoping for. Um, did not, I would not have expected, certainly not in terms of design for freedom as a whole movement. That would, you know, that was one of those, I mean, it came, it, to me, it makes, uh, it's an affirmation of the aspirations that we've been holding. You, know, you can only hope for that architecture itself, how people respond is also certainly, uh, you know, heartening. Um, but I, I definitely did not expect all of the um, exactitude of like, okay, that this is where we would go in terms of being able to, you know, to really take on 
um, forced labor supply chains and you know, have developed now Grease Farms Foods. We also developed the first ethically manufactured uh, face mask, too, um, that we know of in response. So there will probably be many more things. You know, it's evolving, and it's, it's part of having a, um, an entrepreneurial bent and, a, you know, an open, like looking for these open new outcomes. And so, you know, as we move ahead to the future, we're going to continue to evolve and, you know, be open to addressing new pressing humanitarian issues as they arise, like as we did through the pandemic, and continue to think about it in terms of advancing good locally and globally. When you're in the New York area, a visit to Grace Farms is certainly worthwhile. No matter where you are, visit gracefarms.org to find out more about its many initiatives, to take a look at that beautiful building, and to order some of Sylvia Baldini's chocolate chip cookies. And follow Better Angels on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. For more visionary women, find me, Susan Ferry Price, on Twitter and Instagram, or drop me a line at susan at susanferryprice. See you next week.